Crisis at Silicon Valley Bank led to an old-fashioned bank run. Are we in the midst of a new financial crisis? President Biden proposes a budget while the GOP struggles to do the same. Then the Manhattan DA brings in Michael Cohen, signaling they may be close to announcing an indictment. We'll discuss all of that and more. This is Majority 54. All right, Jason. Well, we've been through a couple of these types of things before now and something something feels really rocky right now uh, in the banking sector and this economy generally this this bank called silicon valley bank which i confess to have not did not know that this bank was it's a like bank a huge bank week. too it turns out yeah like 200 billion dollars in assets and i didn't realize you know thursday friday of last week i started having people in my life cancel meetings i, I didn't realize how many people <laughs> in my life banked with silicon valley bank which i think is a measure of how out of touch i've become you know uh or, but or, this well is, i don't know is that me oh i guess the just the amount of people and not that you didn't know but that how many yeah. people in your life bank was so yeah. yes you're yeah. right that i agree that is yeah. a measure of that I still, for the record, use Bank of America. This, the very account I opened when I was 18 years old is still my <laughs> bank account. So I have not and changed. Not even a podcast sponsor. Now we're just giving out free ones, a, Bank of America. Yeah. Give us a call. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, Silicon Valley Bank apparently was founded in 1983, the year of my birth, which means I've outlived it, it seems. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, it, it, let me give you some background on what happened last week, and then we'll talk a little bit about what's happened in the past few days. So... Yeah, this bank, founded in 1983, became known uh, as heavy in helping out tech startups. And they were particularly successful during the pandemic. Uh, their deposits tripled uh, from the period ending in 2019 to the end of 2021. So triple their deposits. And they put a chunk of those deposits into long-term bonds and treasuries because banks tend to want to make money with the money that they have in deposits. And the problem with these uh, long-term bonds and treasuries is uh, you don't get the money you put in it until the bond matures or you sell the bond. And so what wound up happening is the Fed started raising interest rates which reduces the value of these bonds. And so if you're listening and you might be like, well, why does a bond lose value as interest rates rise? There are a couple of reasons, one of which is people issue new bonds at higher interest rates at that period of time. So the opportunity cost of buying your bond uh, doesn't make sense. So people will want to buy new bonds. There's other reasons like present value and discount rates and all that, but this is not an economics podcast. So we won't go into that. Because you've already lost me. So, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> like if your bond area, is making... Man. So pretend you have a bond that pays you out 2%, okay. but now the interest rates go up and now it says you can get 6% on right. the market. Uh, why would I buy so your bond? That makes I would sense. buy something. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's essentially what happens. So um, the Fed interest rate hikes also cool the economy, which and especially the tech sector has been struggling, which means people are depositing less in the bank. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of things are happening at once. And so... Uh, Tech companies are pulling deposits. They're making less deposits as well because they're pulling deposits to make payroll and all this kind of stuff, but they're also making less deposits and there are fewer tech startups generally at this period of time. So when all of this is going on, Silicon Valley Bank uh, has to sell $21 billion, so about 10% of their assets, $21 billion of uh, bonds at a 9% loss. So they're basically saying, hey, we need to sell these at a loss so that we can make good on our depositors. Now, if that was all of the, that was, if that was the only part of the story, 
we wouldn't even be talking about this. We might not even know about it. But they did a strange thing. They announced that they were doing this, and then they said they were going to issue new stock in their bond in their bank and sell it to make up for that loss, which basically sent a bit of a panic through the tech sector last week. And a, and a few prominent venture capitalists like Peter Thiel got on apparently text threads and were basically talking to each other uh, and sowing panic amongst their own ranks and then telling their companies that they've invested in to pull their money out of this bank. So, so why we, did the bank do that? Why did it do, why did it say that yeah, it was going it to I mean that's cuz it feels like there's a lot of people feeling like there's some backdoorness to this some you know mm-hmm. like Yeah the 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 DOJ being one of them Right yeah yes. I I think I think we don't we also, don't know I for think sure I just invented a word backdoorness Yes yeah. <laughs> we don't know for sure we do know that certain executives at this bank sold uh significant stock allocations a week before all of this including the CEO uh, right yeah Including the CEO. Now, the way this works is you have to file a month ahead of time in order to do that. So if if this was some kind of sinister move, it was long in the planning. This wouldn't this might not have been a kind of thing that was a fly by night operation. Now, the bank run was a short term panic. And by most accounts, this bank wasn't even remotely the worst off bank, uh like, you know, related to its peers. Like there was this paper uh, that Matthew Iglesias, for example, was circulating that just came out that essentially said there are, you know, a ton of other banks that if you compare them to Silicon Valley Bank were had way worse fundamentals. I mean, Silicon it, Valley, it feels oh, like Silicon Valley tech executives and, you know, entrepreneur folks were just like, it feels like a like a mob hit on this bank, yeah. right? I mean, it's weird because this is their own. So this is the equivalent of... You know, like in Staten Island Bank, in Staten Island, we have Richmond County Savings Bank, which is where a lot of people open their first savings account where we come from and where a lot of people get their mortgages. I'm sure you have the equivalents in Kansas right. City. This is the equivalent. And, and these the Silicon Valley Bank is not just the bank to the tech sector, but they give apparently really low interest mortgages to people who wouldn't otherwise qualify, but who are working for startups. They give bridge loans to startups that wouldn't otherwise be able to get them. This is a bank that has really took taken care of their own. And what's amazing to me is just how ruthless these tech companies and VCs are where they just basically were like they just cut mm-hmm. these people loose uh, and so what wound up happening is there was an old fashioned run on this bank and then people couldn't pull their money out of it because the FDIC stepped in and then uh, what happened was uh, the Federal Reserve so there was a panic sowing Friday and through the weekend and then uh, the FDIC and Federal Reserve stepped in and essentially took control of this bank and another bank that was struggling, Signature Bank. And so now this is two bank failures in a few days that are now the number two and number three largest bank failures in American history in a matter of a couple of days. And what the FDIC and Federal Reserve did is they guaranteed deposits. And they said, all right, anybody who has a deposit in this bank is... It, you could take your money out on Monday, which is exactly what happened, which is why the markets kind of have stabilized somewhat. They're, they're, the medium and small size banks are still struggling in the market, but by and large, at least in the short term, a crisis has been averted. But there is a lot of politics here, Jason. A lot well, okay, of so to compare it to 08, they're allowing the banks to fail, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, but they're, they're making the depositors whole, but they're not... They're not doing what they did before, which is we got, you know, it's it's like a national imperative that this that this corporation continue to exist and we're going to put a bunch of government money in there. I mean, 
in addition, like it's not really taxpayer dollars, right? It's it's fees paid yeah. by banks that fund the FDIC. Yes, but there is a caveat here. And I and I I've been in some debates with people over the past few days about this. And part of it isn't the government isn't totally clear about this. By and large, yes. There's one thing that the Federal Reserve said that I'm not quite sure how this is going to work in practice, and I haven't seen any really good reporting on this, which is they essentially said that they were going to make loans available to banks that honors uh, the, and I forget the technical term, but essentially remember what I was saying about bonds earlier, Mm -hmm. like that you have a bond that pays out at the end, but it's now trading at below its value. And in this case, they they sold it at 9% below their value, losing Mm -hmm. a ton of money. What the Federal Reserve is saying, they, they're they going to loan out money to banks recognizing the face value, uh, the, lo- the basically the end result value, the paper value of these bonds, even if they're trading lower than that. That is a sense a subsidy uh, mm-hmm. to these banks. Sure so, if they, so if they do that, I think that's politically explosive and then lends some credence to the sense that I wouldn't call it a bailout, but I would say it is taxpayer dollars at work there because it's not a good investment for the taxpayers. And, but let's go to Biden for a second because he, you know, he basically, he came out pretty clear on this and I think signaled some confidence and his, his comments, uh, yesterday, what are we at today? Tuesday? Yeah. Yesterday were part of what I think was a pretty, even though I, I have some questions about what's going on here, was a pretty effective federal response to basically cool everybody down. Let's go to this clip. Hey, thanks for the quick action of my administration over the past few days. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. Last week, when we learned of the problems of the banks, and the impact they could have on jobs from small businesses and banking system overall. I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. They've done that. They've done that. On Friday, the government regulator in charge, the FDIC, took control of Silicon Valley Bank's assets. And over the weekend, it took control of Signature Bank's assets. Treasury Secretary Yellen and a team of banking regulators have taken action, immediate action. And here are the highlights. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills and stay open for business. No losses, will, and I'm on, this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that, because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, Investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. 
We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. So that last part is key, Jason, because there were regulations, 2008 Dodd-Frank, capital and liquidity requirements, and stress tests to basically say, how do we avoid a 2008 financial crisis? And then in 2018, congressional Republicans with some Democrats uh, exempted small and medium-sized banks. Interestingly, and they raised the threshold uh, for the stress tests, like the key stress tests, to $250 billion. Now, Silicon Valley Bank is $200 billion. So one of the stress tests that they would have been required to do is what happens if interest rates skyrocket. So they, they would have been at least forced to play out what happened. So this is a classic case of regulation uh, being really regulation could have stopped this potentially. Well, a regulation that was in place until it was in place, you yeah. know, a few years ago, and uh, but until the Trump administration, right? You know what? Because we're talking about the politics of this, one of the things that strikes me about that clip of Biden there is how much we probably politicians on both sides of the aisle, but particularly how much politicians on the left have learned over the last yes, few I was years the same thing. about yes. how to talk, <laughs> right? Yes. Like, I mean, yeah. there's some stuff in there that like you would not have expected a few years ago to be in a president's prepared remarks, but should be right. Like yep. his prepared, this is like the first stuff he's saying to make sure every, nobody freaks out and there's not a run on banks and that you don't have a huge political problem and people thinking that you handed out a sweetheart deal. He says, I mean, he uses the words, the management of these banks will be fired, right? He's not like being diplomatic about that. He's like, I need people to know this fact, right? Yeah. Uh, and and then he's also saying like, this doesn't involve any taxpayer dollars. So the difference now in like being aggressive and going out there and saying, look, I know what they're going to try to say about me and I know what you're wondering. So I'm just going to address it the way you would in a one-on-one conversation with somebody. But in that case, he's talking to the country. Like that's a big yep. deal that we've come that far in our rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think what's fascinating to me is this is this was a, such a classic case where regulation could have mitigated the risk of this happening. I'm not saying it for sure could have stopped it because in the end, this was a bank that was probably solvent. We'll find out for sure. It was the panic really that did it in. And you know, if there are animal spirits involved, like does a stress test really stop that? We don't know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but what's fascinating to me is these uh, the congressional Republicans and Republicans writ large are trying to make this about an elite bailout now? Like this is the, this is the tech sector, uh-huh. Democrats are close. And remember who we're talking about here: Peter Thiel and these guys who are all Trump guys on a text message thread. These are the people getting bailed out here. Now, are all these tech companies uh, Republicans? Of course not. Like Crooked Media, for example, had credit cards with this bank. You know, mm-hmm. so like it's complicated. But of course, they don't. They don't want to make a complicated situation complicated. They want to make it about this elite narrative within the Democratic Party. And if this were the Farmers Bank of Santa Clara County, uh, this would not be this. It wouldn't have the same kind of tinge to it, right? Right. But the fact that it's called Silicon Valley Bank, I think, makes this very politically difficult for Biden. Well, I, some of the memes and takes that I've found most interesting about it focus on the like the common economic libertarianism of uh, Silicon Valley and of so many of these founders, right? Like, I think I saw one that was just saying like, 
it was imitating them and being like, we don't need the government to do anything. We'll just solve all the problems that the government can't solve. Oh, wait, what? Interest rates? <laughs> government, get in here. Where are you, government? Like, wh- right. why is it taking so long? <laughs> right? And uh, right. And and I think that there is an element of that there. So so it is, it's, it's like especially ironic, right? It's not just that you have the Peter Thiels of the world, but you also have, even for, you know, some of the more maybe liberal... Uh, folks in Silicon Valley, a lot of them still come from like a fiscally sort of libertarian philosophy. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you and I have actually both for different reasons spent a fair amount of time in Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, I've been out there because I've been out there to raise political money. And uh, well, that's probably actually part of why you've been out there. <laughs> so not that yeah, different reasons. That's exactly what I've spent time there. That yeah. is the only that is the only time I've spent there. Yeah, yeah, I've not I've not I've not been out there talking to people about my idea. Including for an with app. Sam Bigman Fried's <laughs> mother. Literally right. literally I don't know if I've shared that in this podcast. I would say like at least fifty percent of the time I've been in Silicon Valley, I have sat down with Sam Bankman Fried's family because they used to be like very involved in democratic raising. Uh and thankfully I've never taken any of their money. I only have seen them around uh the circuit. Well, and I've know. I haven't either that I know of, but I've uh you know, I've been out there with I've sat down with a lot of bold-faced Silicon Valley names. Now, we don't have conversations about how Silicon Valley works because I just had, you just had to explain how a bank run worked in this case <laughs> to me. Like, I, you know, I, I remember like several years ago sitting down with a with a dude before crypto became a thing and he explained cryptocurrency to me and I was like, this is crazy. This will never be a thing. He, I'm sure uh, he didn't explain it right because I've still yet to find a person who can explain <laughs> crypto to me attempted. well, including... Including I've been on the I've been on a call before with a Cornell professor who wrote a whole book about crypto and at the end of it I was more confused than when I started. Yeah, I mean, well, so I, you know I've been in that world and it's one of the things that's so interesting to me about that world is that it's not that the people aren't you know a lot of them are good people like anywhere else. There's a smattering of this and that. But what's so interesting to me is that the culture there is so about the quant thing. It's about, it's yep. not about the quality of anything. It's about the, can you quantify? It's very, it's yep. a very analytical culture as, as you would imagine to the point where I don't know what your experience was. I don't think we've ever talked about this, but like for me as a political fundraiser out there, who's basically, you know, you're basically selling something right when you're fundraising right. politically, you're selling a story, you're trying to make an emotional pitch in order to, uh, you know, make the sale, get someone to invest in what you're after. And I found Silicon Valley to be the one of the wealthiest places I went to raise money, but also uh, at the same time, one of the hardest places to actually raise money because my usual stuff where I would appeal to people's like emotions and that kind of thing, it just didn't work because everybody was so uh, purely analytical that like, it just was like, it wasn't work, you know, people just kind of stared yeah. back at me. Uh, it's funny you it's should hard. say this. It's funny. This is actually an interesting uh, aside because the reason why I knew the the Bankman Freed family is because I was I had one model for candidate support, which was very much about the quality of the candidate. And part of our model at Arena was we find really strong candidates and we pair them up with difficult uh, districts. Mm-hmm. What Bankman Freed's uh, family was doing, and it was his brother and his mom. Uh, that where they were doing the quantitative method that you're talking about, which is what do the numbers say the right places to invest in? And what's interesting to me is if you look back, and so we would often be at the same fundraisers, this is how I would always run into them, and we'd be pitching the same donors on different theories of the case. Mm-hmm. And if you look back 
at the candidates that we were pitching versus the candidates they were pitching. Who are the candidates that we were pitching? Uh, Houlihan, Alyssa Slotkin, Haley Stevens, Lauren Underwood. Mm-hmm. You know, you go down the list, these candidates, Lena Hidalgo, right? These candidates, you know, won difficult races and by and large have survived. And analytically uh, on paper, they would not have been. No way. Lauren Underwood. Are you kidding me? Naperville, Illinois, yeah. you know, like, like these that, are tough, like, tough races. White conservative district. Uh, yeah. You know, one by a, one by a black woman and then held by a black woman. Uh, so what I'm saying, Jason, is I'm proud of me. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm proud well, of me. It's funny yeah. because it, it, it's, it's kind of like for baseball fans, uh, they're, people may be somewhat familiar. Anybody who's seen Moneyball is familiar with the idea that there is still this, you know, these two worlds in, in baseball, right? The old school people who are like, ah, too many statistics. Or, you know, I can, I know a baseball player when I see one and this is true in all sports now, really. And then all the yep. analytical folks, you know, who want to, who want to get into the data. Yeah, I guess I'm the old scout in that example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, but because there's a place for both. My funny, uh, somewhat related Silicon Valley fundraising story is, um, also one where I, I don't think I got funding. Um, so it was uh, Jack Dorsey, founder of Twitter, who's a, a St. Louis guy and his his parents are still in St. Louis. Good family, good Missouri family. Uh, I was raising money for Let America Vote. I want to say this is like 17 or 18, 2017, 2018, something like that. So I go to Twitter and I sit down. Actually, I think it was at Square at that time. And I sit down with Jack Dorsey. And, uh, and speaking of the like, I'm going to make sort of an emotional appeal thing. Uh, he was very nice, didn't end up, uh, you know, making a donation to let America vote. But my, my like emotional appeal was because he was a Missouri guy, I brought this t-shirt from this t-shirt store in Springfield, Missouri, that makes these shirts that, it, uh, just say Missouri is awesome. And it's all these different Missouri is awesome slogans. And it's, it's just fun merch. The thing is, I didn't realize Jack Dorsey is a, is a pretty, uh, uh small person, right? Like, like I don't know. Jack Dorsey is not a big guy, right? I mean, I don't yep. know. He's, I don't want to guess his height and weight, but I'm bigger than Jack Dorsey. Right. And, um, and, uh, and so I brought, because, you know, when you don't know what t-shirt size to get somebody, you generally go medium know. or large, you know, <laughs> and, uh, Jack Dorsey, I think certainly wears a small. Um, and, uh, and so it was just this awkward moment where, he being a very analytical guy didn't really care that I brought him a t-shirt anyway. But on top of that, he must've just been like, what a dope. Like I brought him a shirt that was, I basically brought him a night shirt. Um, and we never, he never mentioned it. He was very nice about it, but that was kind of my, I have always thought about that, about the difficulty of raising money out there. Um, no, man. But anyway, point being well, the, what I was going, where I was going with all this is that, you know, you were saying all these folks who have invested in this, what is essentially a community bank, their larger, very wealthy, very entrepreneurial community, having no qualms about just sort of knifing that bank and making a run right. on that bank because no matter what their moral framework, and it's different for each of them as it is different for every human, the way they do business is it's all dictated by the numbers, even more than, right. than a lot of corporations in this country. And I, and I think that's a lot of what happened. There's something wrong with our society where people just can come together like that and say, you know what, this institution, which has done so much for us, we, we're just going to kill it. And, it, you know, that text thread should have been, how do we save this bank? There was enough money around right. that table to save that bank. And they could have just saved it by doing nothing. But yeah. they, they, they really could have, they should have just been coming together. And, and 
it's amazing that this isn't even and this wasn't the dominant part of the conversation and it, and, it, and it makes you think people are saying this was a an old-fashioned you know early i had a guy say to me the other day this is an early 20th century run i'm like this is a this is a 2023 run right. like the text thread the fact that you could pull your money out like like these guys would have had to go to the bank back in the day and pull it out it would have been way slower the government could have reacted faster uh, but the other thing that this raises and is also where would they have met up to come up with all this right they would have yeah. like, everybody now to the barber shop we're going to talk contagion, about how to do this the contagion risk would have been much lower now right. the the other problem now is that in 2023 there was this you know this saying back in 2008 too big to fail and when you mm -hmm. said too big to fail you meant bank of america you meant chase mm -hmm. you meant goldman sachs lehman right now you've got this is the 16th largest bank in the country is somehow now too big to fail Mm -hmm. And so you're like, well, what the hell is going on here? Like, mm -hmm. if all these institutions are too big to fail in the 2023 environment, then we really got to rethink our regulation. Well, it it makes me think about like, you know, we we don't really think about how uh, genius of a concept the FDIC is ever. Yeah, like, it really is. Right? It's you don't think about that. Yeah, you don't think about that the way you don't think about how amazing it is that they're able to pick up your trash, right? Like, but like that took a lot of work to figure out how to pick up your trash. Right. Uh, now, and a lot of hardship, honestly, like if you look about the FDIC, right? right. Like, like people and, had to really suffer for us to come up with that concept. Exactly. Like, you know, coming out of the thirties, coming out of all those experiences, just the fact that those guys can be on that. And I assume maybe some gals be on that text chain and say like, and know that a certain amount of the depositors are going to be covered by this institution that's been created by regulation, by government, without government, like this takes everything down, right? right? It doesn't matter that it's the 16th biggest bank. It causes a run everywhere else, right? Like you and I are going to take, take money out of our banks if this happens and there's no FDIC and there's no, right? Like, so it's just, my point being it, as a, as a progressive, it is always important to note the opportunities to make the case for government because like we talk about a lot of the time, we have to accept the idea that we are the party of government. We are the party that right. says like, no, government has a role to play and it's really important and government can do good things. We shouldn't just take a situation like this where everybody understands the FDIC exists and what it does and, and just ignore it. We should be like, no, no, no. See, this is actually a really good example that people won't notice otherwise. Totally agree. Well, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to talk about Biden's budget versus essentially nothing from the Republicans, how that debate is playing out. We're going to talk about Michael Cohen testifying uh, in front of a grand jury in this Trump indictment. And we're also going to talk about DeSantis versus Trump. Trump just put out another video attacking DeSantis today. We're going to unpack that and more. Let's hear from our sponsors. Well, longtime listeners of the show know that my favorite thing I take every single day is Athletic Greens, and this is your daily nutritional insurance. And what they have is this is just one scoop of powder that you put in water. It tastes really good, and it gives you 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients. And I take it now in place of coffee in the morning, but of course you could take it and take your coffee in the morning. And then if I'm like particularly active during the day, like if I have like a crazy workout or I just am on my feet all day and, and feeling a little run down, I'll take it a second Time. And I travel everywhere with it. And if you're looking for a simpler, cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. You can go to athleticgreens.com slash majority. That's athleticgreens.com slash majority to check it out. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
I know that these dog days, these last days of winter can be really difficult for people. It's dark over here in New York. It's snowing out. And it's really important to identify the way that your mood changes at this time. I certainly feel it. And it's important that if you're not feeling right, to get help. And what I love about BetterHelp, our sponsor, is that they offer uh, therapy, advice, somebody to talk to, and you don't have to walk through that office. I know that that some of you live in like you know rural places or places where you may even know you know most of the practitioners in your town. You may not want to run into somebody in the waiting room, or you just might want to talk to somebody right now. And that's what I love about BetterHelp is that they kind of decrease the barrier to entry for people asking for help. And you can access the breadth of experience from all over the country, potentially, you know, like the person who, you know, fits you right might not be in the same state, might not be in the same city, and you could find them through BetterHelp. And so I love that it's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and to suit your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist and you could switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash M54 today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash M54. So I'm speaking to you here from my apartment in Manhattan and right in this other room behind me is my Helix mattress. I have the Midnight Lux mattress because I like a medium feel and I sleep on my side. And what's really cool about Helix is that they have this quiz, the sleep quiz. You take it. It takes no time really to finish it. And it just gets you your customized mattress like mine. And uh, for me, it revolutionized my sleep. I was always somebody who struggled with sleep. And ever since I've had this mattress, it's just dramatically improved my sleep. I'm way more consistent with it. And I'm going to take this with me. I'm about to move in a month. And this is the one thing I'm probably getting rid of almost all my furniture. But the one thing I'm definitely taking with me is my Helix mattress. So Helix offers a 100-night trial and a 10 to 15-year warranty to try out your new mattress. They're offering 20% off all mattresses and two free pillows for our listeners. So you can go to helixsleep.com slash majority54. And this is their best offer yet. And it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. All right, Ravi, we're about to talk about uh, the budget, Biden's budget, the non-existent budget so far from the Republicans. uh, And we're going to get into the back and forth and what the politics of this are. But first, I have a a question. Um, This I I, was a political science major uh, and I was a political science major at American University. Uh, You were a couple years behind me, but also a political nerd. Do you remember this thing? Uh, I think it started like when we were in high school uh, and then it was still big for me among nerds like me in college. There was a website. I don't remember who did it, but it was uh, like a, a website where you could work on the federal budget and you could make all sorts of changes. There was like a drop down <laughs> menu. Do you remember this at all? No, I was okay. a chemistry major, so oh, that's I, right. I never got. That's yeah, right. So I, I forgot. You were a different yeah. kind of nerd. Um, yeah. So there was the, some people listening to this will remember. There was this site where you could go on and it was the entire federal budget and it was all these drop down menus and you would go and you you would adjust. The idea was, could you balance the budget? And also, what were your priorities? So you go through like in pretty serious detail, different line items you could cut from the Pentagon. You could cut from specific programs in the Pentagon. You could cut from all sorts of different things. And at the end, it would give you a, a little like report 
page and it would tell you how close you got to uh, balancing the budget, how much you raised taxes, if that's how you actually got to balance the budget. And then it would tell you like, and they have these now, like these political philosophy quizzes. It would tell you like what your political philosophy was, like whether you were liberal, whether you were center left, all that sort of thing. Uh, and it, it was, uh, it, I mean, I would just do it over and over again. And the thing that I remember about it was it was like impossible to win. Like you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't balance the budget without somebody getting really screwed over, like without like cutting a huge part of the military or massively increasing taxes, you know, because as I recall, because it wasn't really in our political lexicon at the time, there wasn't the ability to raise taxes on like the super rich, which is kind yeah, of what Biden Yeah, and I bet you Biden couldn't go in there and uh, exercise some scrutiny over those, you know, $10,000 toilet seats at the Pentagon. Right. So it's like it probably wasn't that detailed enough, right? And it didn't yeah. do things like, uh, you know, account for the idea that, which this was good, this like made up idea that, well, see, if we cut taxes for the very rich, that's going to pay for itself because, you know, all this trickle down yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. But it, anyway, I just, I remember that and I was thinking about that when I was thinking about the fact that we're just about to talk about this, that Biden went ahead and proposed a budget and the Republicans are like, we can't even finish this website. Like we can't even agree yeah. on, on Lots how of great memes. To, which drop down menus to do. Lots of great memes there. Like it's like, you know, the White House put out one that was like on one side is like the details of Biden's budget and bullets. And then the right side is the Republicans. And it's like that little sort of thing that happens on your screen when it's loading. Uh, <laughs> and so this is another area. So we were talking about with the bank bailout, right? This, this harkens back to the Obama administration. So with the bank ballot, you, you know, you made the comment that, hey, it looks like people are learning. Like, like uh, Biden learned from the mistakes of, of what we did back then when we weren't populist enough. Well, this is another example. Uh, this is another example where it sounds to me like Biden and the veterans of the Obama administration learned from the previous negotiations with, with Congress over uh, the budget during, you know, recession risk. And last time they agreed to a lot of fiscal constraint on the front end and basically negotiated with themselves. And Biden came out and said, you know what? I've added 12 million jobs, more jobs than in two years than any president has created in a four-year term, uh, including 800,000 manufacturing jobs. The unemployment rate is at 3.4%, the lowest in 54 years. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to... I'm gonna have a little pep in my step and I, I'm not gonna negotiate with myself here. I'm gonna just put out the budget I want. And this budget is really detailed. You know, I was going through this and it has, you know, too much to mention, but it protects and strengthens Medicare. It extends the solvency of Medicare's trust fund by at least 25 years uh, without cutting benefits or raising the costs for beneficiaries. It cuts taxes for families. It extends the uh, full child tax credit, uh, which was in the American Rescue Plan. And, you know, that, you know, think about all the things that Biden has done. Like the, the child tax credit cut child poverty in half in 2021 to its lowest level in history. It's right? amazing is, that that's a thing that happened and not just like an academic thing that you could claim a CBO estimate would say your proposal would do. Like that's a thing crazy. that happened. It's crazy. It's, it's hard to talk about these things because the tax credit, right? Like these are not yeah. like easy things to talk about. You know, speaking of, you know, he extended key sections of the ACA or he's trying to. Uh, it would give Medicare more power to negotiate prescription drug prices. It invests $150 billion over 10 years to improve and expand Medicaid home and community-based services. You know, totally underrated issue right now where we have the largest group of retirees we've ever had and will ever have. 
So it's going to be really important to try to keep those folks as much as possible out of nursing homes, given like the kind of care they need, especially the most vulnerable in society. Uh, it provides almost a billion dollars in 2024 to expand the National Health Service Corps, uh, which provides loan repayment and scholarships to healthcare professionals in exchange for practicing in underserved areas. This is the stuff that we talked about with student loans a while mm-hmm. ago mm-hmm. that got me in trouble with my new best friend, mm-hmm. our, a baker in Kansas, which is like I was saying, look, like let's tie relief to certain jobs in our society. Uh, obviously, we're going to add those bakers in because she and I are really cool now and I understand <laughs> more now than I knew before. Uh, but the uh, that's a that's a deep cut for some of our new listeners. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. You got uh, to reward the, the long-time listeners. You got to reward the long-time listeners. But this, some of this, did you know about some of this stuff? I didn't, like, I didn't know this stuff was on the table. Right. So this is like, it's crazy. And it's got supply side housing stuff, like basically building more supply. Like Newsom has gotten much better on this kind of stuff where they're trying to push. New York is doing this. Hoka's doing this in, in, in New York and California is doing this under Newsom. Biden's not doing this. Democrats are getting now in the business of building more housing and understanding that's a key to affordability and integration. This stuff is like each one of these things is a humongous deal. It's, right. I, I have I have different emotions when I read like when I read about the budget, one is, uh, man, I know it was like almost impossible. It would have been really cool to keep the house, uh, because you could do this stuff. Right. Um, two, like it bums me out because I'm like, uh, because first you're like, you read it and you're like, Oh, that's cool. That's cool. And then you remember, Oh, this isn't happening. This is like basically academic. This is, this is no different. I mean, to make a real nerd callback, uh, this is no different than like the bills that were proposed when you were in student Congress in high school, right? right? Like it has the same authority because there's a Republican house and that's kind of a bummer when you realize that. But at the same time, there's stuff in there uh, that, I mean, if you're being honest, I don't know. And there's even stuff that wasn't proposed when we had unified control of government, um, because you don't want to propose it and then not be able to do it. But now that you know right. you're not going to get your stuff done, like the billionaire tax that is a 25% you know, annual income tax of, of you know, their overall worth or their overall uh, income for that year um, of the 0.01%, top 0.01% of the population, for whatever reason, that wasn't proposed before, probably because people would have been really mad when you know, Mansion and Cinema wouldn't have allowed them to actually do it. Uh, right. So some of it is political, some of cinema, it's academic. Cinema, senator from venture capital, right. private equity. Uh, yes. it's, a, it's a small town in Arizona. But uh, <laughs> yeah, right. she, she's clearly auditioning. No, I hear you. He's, he's playing opposition politics in the presidency, yes. which I think well this, is a lesson, this is a lesson learned from the midterms where we were playing. I was talking to Kristen Soltis-Anderson, uh, the Republican uh, pollster. I think she's kind of like a moderate. I don't even think she considers herself a Republican anymore. But I was talking to her the other day about how this is like Biden did something remarkable in that race because he was able to turn the Supreme Court and a couple other issues like election denialism and what was happening in state houses around the country to say, look, I may be the president, but there are all these other people who are in control of various forms of government, in some cases like the Supreme Court stopping me from doing critical things. They're as much uh, on this ballot as I am. And that was really successful. So I think they're learning from that as we head towards this election. Yeah, because what we would do in the past is we would just fall into the idea that why aren't we able to do the things that we said we were going to do? Right. right. And, and it's and then we turn on each other, which exactly. we're not doing right now. Thank God. Exactly. You know? And uh, the, the other thing that I got from 
so far from paying attention to this budget debate that's so interesting to me is the very difficult situation the Republicans are in because they've made all of these lofty promises of things that they want to do. And the expectation, I'm sure, of their voters is that they, they at least pass something out of the House that does the stuff that they want yeah. to do, right? That they balance the budget, that they... But then Biden and the Democrats have forced them because they don't want to actually lose the majority and they don't want to lose the seats that are in more competitive areas to commit to things like, and also because they don't want to lose generally, to commit to things like not cutting Medicare or Social Security, at least on paper, which is why they can't create a budget like they can't offer a budget right. that's going to pass the house because you they can't do both of those things because like like biden can be like i'm going to balance the budget by a certain period of time because he throws in there the idea that hey we're going to really increase taxes on the top 0.01 percent and knowing that that makes sense to people and that people aren't going to be yeah. like whoa 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 now that's the third rail don't touch the 0.01 percent or you right. know <laughs> you know whereas like they can't do that because well, that's their funders. Well, you know, Biden met with McCarthy, and mm-hmm. uh, you know things got interesting there. Um, Salty, I don't know if you could tee up this video, but th- let's go to a video of Biden as he came out of that meeting uh, with McCarthy. What is your message? What is your message to Leader McCarthy? Speaker McCarthy, sorry, sir. What would be your message? Show me your budget. I'll show you mine. I mean, yet yet another example of where you know, like even in early Obama days, that same situation. Obama is going to say, you know, well, I I think the fact well, that they have not yet offered, yeah, well. they have not yet offered a budget, says a lot about, and you know, and yeah. now we've gotten to the point where Biden, the guy who's been in Washington for forty plus years, right. Even he now, his natural instinct is to just be like, show me yours, I'll show you mine. Like, speak in ways people usually speak. Remember this, uh, and by the way, if you can hear the honking, that's that's true New York out there. It's authentic. But the- Meanwhile, if you can hear on my side, my daughter just singing a song. Like, that's that's (laughs) true. I'm 41 and I got a wife and two kids and I live in Kansas City. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, I don't remember the exact words exchanged, but I remember when Obama and Paul Ryan had this exchange over the deficit. Do you remember this? And Uh I bet you if we replayed it, it would be the most like totally chill- like right. diffused situation ever, but everybody was clutching their pearls at the time. Like, Oh my God. And apparently Paul Ryan was like offended. And I think what Obama did was basically have a policy debate with Ryan. Right. And now things have changed so much. Well, so, um, so that's the budget debate. I think like essentially Republicans don't have one. They may never offer one. They're criticizing Biden. I'm not sure it's really landing. I'm not sure that the budget debate is going to be where, you know, this election's decided, but the, the obviously the um, the debt limit could matter, and the sort of nihilism mm-hmm. of Republicans could matter, and so I think like that's obviously something we're keeping our eyes on over the next few months as that well, debate heats up. And when you talk to your friends about the politics of this moment, it's like, okay, you you might not agree with with Biden on a lot of things, but like of the two, he's offering an idea, like he's doing yeah. something, he's offering a budget, and what is the other side doing? Not not only are they not offering a budget, but on top of that, you know, all we know about their budget is that one of their lead budget planners said that the most important thing their budget can do is not harm their majority. So right. it's like, and we always talk about assigning motive, like that's what they're interested in. They're right. interested exclusively in how many members of Congress they have and not 
you know, what happens for the country. Well, this is what I would say to Ben LeBolt and some of these other people in Biden world if they if they were to ever ask my opinion on this as they head towards the next election, which is we've got to learn from decades of getting our asses kicked by Republicans. What were they really good at? They were the party of more of the same stability, conserve, small C conservative. You know, the world is not going to change too much. And the, the Democrats, we were the party of the 60s, right? The boomers, mm-hmm. like the Bill Clinton generation, the people with the long hippie hair, and then they finally cut it. Like, well, who's Tony Blair? Who's Bill Clinton? These were children really of the 60s, right? And mm-hmm. they were like, even though we're not talking about the most radical people in the world, they represented people who were kind of trying to push change constantly, change, change, change. Now, what we have, where we find ourselves is we have to do, we have to play two different games at once. We want to push change increase rights for people, et cetera. That's baked into our politics, right? But by and large, we've won a lot of those battles. And right now we're playing defense on those battles. But then when it comes to other critical things like this bank situation and any instability in the economy, the debt limit increase, the Ukraine war, the pandemic, you go down the line and you say, all right, who are the people who are for stability? That's us. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is tell a story to the American people like what the Republicans used to tell, but a more ethical version of the story to say, look, like the world may not be exactly what you want it to be, but you could count on certain things. You can count on going to the bank. You can count on, you know, aggressive dictatorships, not invading our shores or the shores of our allies. You can count on the U S government paying its bills, right? These are all things that you can count on that you cannot count on if the Republicans take power because they are radicals, right? And so like, I think we need to get into the, you know, the habit of telling that story. And I know it's not natural to us because we're the people often pushing for change. Well, and what we've got to do, I agree with you completely is we've got to bake in the idea that change is part of, of, you know, sustainability and of stability that like, that if you try and keep everything the same all the time, you you won't have stability. You've got to be able to change as times change. Uh, but the difference is, is that they also want to change, but they want to change back to stuff right. from a long time ago that we've learned lessons since. And, yeah, and so nerdy political point. That right. was actually that what the Labor Party tried to peg Cameron with in that election. They used to say he wants to turn back the clock to the 1980s. And they had this like this really funny ad with a British television show. There's like one person in our audience who will get that reference. But uh, okay, now this is for the Midas audience. I know they love our our Trump DA investigation stuff. The Midas Midas, we call them. So, uh, you know, right down the street, you could see it actually from my window is the Manhattan DA's office. And Michael Cohen has now testified in front of the grand jury uh, or is testifying. And this is, you know, one of a few signs that uh, Alvin Bragg, our district attorney in Manhattan, is closing in on an indictment of Trump. Now, who knows for sure if this is going to happen, but it seems like, you know, most people I trust in this orbit, including reporters and just people who are around the courthouse and around the district attorney's office seem to think this is imminent. Jason, like, I I, I can't even wrap my head around how explosive this is going to be. Well, because it seems like it's going to coincide with another indictment in Georgia, probably, like not too far off. Uh, yeah, I was listening to something the other day that where they literally just had somebody on to explain what the process is in New York if you're indicted. And they were like, well, you get arraigned. And they're like, well, what does that mean? They said, well, the actual policy in New York is, is that everyone in order to be arraigned must be handcuffed. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that alone is like so, I guess, 
if things follow the way they're supposed to usually work, which with when it comes to Trump, they never do. But then in theory, once he's indicted in order to come in and, you know, enter his plea and, and that kind of thing, he would have to be handcuffed in order to do that. Now, I don't know if that'll happen, but like mm. it, it's it's about to get crazy. And it is why, as we've pointed out here before, it is why Trump announced so early, because if yeah. Trump if Trump were building toward an announcement right now, like a typical candidate, well, then he is not in a position like he is right now to say that these are all like he's saying right now. These it's a politically motivated witch hunt. Because if he's a former president who's not currently a candidate for something, that's a little tougher. But now that he's announced, even though it's not like his campaign is going great, uh, he can say, look, they just want to stop me. And there's a lot of people that will believe that. Now, I don't think very many of those people will be among the 12 reasonable individuals no. chosen for a jury in either Atlanta or yeah, there are not New York many, City. Unless they somehow can, can finagle my dad into that jury. There are not many people in Manhattan who <laughs> right. are going to vote to, to exonerate Trump, uh, which is in and of itself a reason why we need to all be careful here. Like, mm -hmm. like the, you know, there's the saying you can indict a ham sandwich, and I think Trump has committed many, many crimes, but we need much to- Much more than your average ham sandwich, in fact. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and you need to, we need to dot our I's, cross our T's. I've been critical of the way that Bragg has handled this investigation. And uh, he has, he has invited criticism of the politicization of this. He could have handed this off to one of the many seasoned independent prosecutors in his office. And look, are the, 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 the frothy Trump bunch going to like pay attention to the ins and outs? No, but it's an important precedent to establish, right? Like everything we do needs to be above board and as organized as possible. And he's been herky-jerky on this. Mm -hmm. And that worries me. That worries me because it 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 adds unnecessary unnecessary gasoline to the fire here. And, you know, look, I was, you know, like very involved in, in helping him win. Uh, brag, uh, not Trump, obviously. Uh, but <laughs> it'd, be, it, it, it'd be news to the audience. It pains me to say this, but I don't have a lot of confidence that they're going to handle this well. And, and that, that's really bad because we can't control that. Like, like it's up to a few people who have really mishandled a lot in the island of Manhattan over the past year uh, to do this well. It's also yeah. really difficult to handle well in the same way that for the four years of the Trump administration, it was really difficult to write monologues for late night TV because the stuff was so insane and so ridiculous that trying to parody it or, or satire it, satirize it was so difficult in the same way that taking something that, I mean, we are literally like, we haven't even mentioned the fact that what, that the subject matter of the uh, coming indictment in New York is a hush money payment to a porn star. <laughs> okay. Yeah, unbelievable. Like, what, it's unbelievable I, what this guy has gotten away with, honestly. Right. And so like the level of difficulty in approaching that with a sobriety and a, you know, and, and something that where nobody can ever claim that anything was anything but uh, by the book is difficult because prosecuting a president for making a hush money payment fraudulently to a porn star just prior to an election to keep it out of the news, that's, to my knowledge, not been done. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, like Hollywood yeah. hasn't even tried to write something that ridiculous as a joke. I mean, so it's, right. it's a high level of difficulty. So I think this is the kind of thing. I mean, obviously, you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll, I think if something happens, you know, we probably should try to get on for an emergency pod when it happens. And I think like this to me is, 
you know, there are probably a couple of issues, the debt ceiling being one of them that could be potentially explosive and, and could be one of those moments like where were you when X happened type of moments. I would put this number one on the list mm-hmm. because when this happens, the amount of unpredictability of our politics, which has already been explosive, like it's it's this is going to be uh, one of the explosive moments in our political lifetime. And we just need to be ready for it. We need to be organized. We need to, you know, speak with credibility, we need to be able to defend what was going, what's going on, and if, and if there's anybody out there in Bragg world or who has influence over him, like transparency, integrity, over communicate, and use a standard of process that you would use for even your closest allies. Like the process, look, Trump has committed crimes. It won't be hard if you use, you know, you don't have to cook the process here. Just be above board with it and do this right. Okay, now I have a weird, fun question about this, which is, uh-huh. let's say this all goes down and he's convicted and he even, you know, has to serve a sentence of some kind in, in, and he's incarcerated. I was just thinking the other day, how does that work? Like, yeah. how, do well, you, he, how do you put in, in New York, somebody he would who's do state prison. secret yeah. service protection for the, yeah. like, and how does that even I think they just put work? him in segregation. Uh, they put him in a segregated unit and uh, they would, they might have to build a special place for him uh, to go, but it would be in New York if it were this one. Yeah. Uh, and, and that I'm sure the Trump organization would try to get the contract. Yeah. <laughs> well, I shouldn't laugh at this. Not, this is the exact thing I <laughs> should try though. Right. I, I mean, like, uh, I, 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 I honestly, I look, I think the guy deserves to be indicted. I, I am not gleeful in any way about w- the position he has put us all into. Like, I, right. I don't want, I don't like this. It is necessary but I don't think this is great. Like it, this is, this is, it, and it's not the fault of anybody but Trump himself for committing crimes and being as sloppy as he's been. Uh, and you know, <laughs> I almost implied that maybe committed less sloppily. No, I mean, and, you know, <laughs> airtight crimes are bad too, people. But like, <laughs> this is just—he's just been so blatant about so many different crimes that he's put our entire system in jeopardy. Right? Like this is—we're not meant to be in this place. All right. Speaking yeah. of Trump, yes, there's this video he put out, and I have some. Yes, questions. set this up because um, now I'm depressed. All right. So Trump issued this video. It feels kind of non sequitur. This video going after Ron DeSantis, who he refers to in it as Ron DeSantis, which is, well, we're going to get to that anyway. Let's go ahead and uh, and hear this clip from Trump that he put out about Ron DeSantis. For those of you that didn't notice. Florida was doing great long before Ron DeSantis got there. People are fleeing from New York to Florida and other places because of high taxes and out-of-control crime. It's really bad. Not because of the governor. Thank you, Mr. President, for doing that. But it's not because of the governor. Florida was doing fantastically. You had a governor named Rick Scott who did a very good job. Even Charlie Crist, a Democrat, did a good job, and he had very good numbers. Sunshine and ocean are very alluring. It's not too hard to work with those factors. So just remember, Florida was doing really well long before Ron DeSantis got there. Okay, I've got a few questions. 
Is somebody somebody just commented, "Don't platform." We're not platform. Right, I hope you're He's the, the most minus the people. President no, of the United States. Well, this podcast reason, is not platforming. The, here. the reason why we do this is your minus people, your majority fifty four people. You're not going to be persuaded by Trump. We have to take a step back and enjoy the infighting in the Republican Party every now and then. Yeah. It is just too beautiful to avoid, like and, them turning on each other. And, yeah, I mean, look, we've lived, we survived. The, not everyone did, quite literally. The Trump administration, like, I think we can look back and be like, can you believe this stuff? So, it, yeah. for example, I'm trying to trace the origin of De Sanctus. I think this is the thing that's happening. I know it started as he was going to call De him Sanctimonious. Yeah. And then it was De, something else. Is De Which Sanctus, honestly for, it was a word I was not expecting Trump to come out with. I didn't think he had hmm. that level of vocabulary. You know, I, Sanctimonious is, is, that's a strong vocabulary. It's, it, it, it's multisyllabic. I don't know if you uh, use Grammarly, and I don't mean to give them a free advertisement, but they kind of score you on the uniqueness of your vocabulary. I think they would give me points for sanctimonious. For sanctimonious. I'm going to try that tomorrow. And so anyway, I don't know. We're, we're now in some place where he's like so deep into this that he's got this hybrid nickname for him that makes no sense. Uh, the other thing is he's so dedicated to these weird little ad libs in the middle of statements like this that yeah. after a minute, you're like, not thank sure you, Mr. What President. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, is, wait a minute. Joe Biden's president. What are you I talking know. about, buddy? Yeah. I'm like, it's is like, that, are you saying somebody should have said thank you, Mr. President to you when you were president? And then by the end of the video, you can't tell if he's really <laughs> yes. hitting DeSantis or if he's trying to say, look, fine things are good in florida but it's not because of him which and in which case it's like why did you make this video <laughs> like that's yeah. not worthy of it and i think it comes down to the fact that like desantis is clearly really in his head not just because he's you know polling oh, sure. well he's because he yeah. lives there because trump yeah. lives in florida and every time he turns on the local news desantis is on the news and he and he it's in the air and we you know we've dealt with this we've talked to people on the show who are who have relatives in florida who are like trying to understand why DeSantis is as popular as he is in Florida. And they're very irritated yeah. by it. And I think one of the people experiencing that is Trump because he lives yeah. there. And, yeah. it's, it's and he does not like to be the king of the castle. You know, he not, thought he not was going like, to move there the and it was going to yeah. be like Gene Hackman's character in Mooseport that he was going to show up <laughs> and everybody. What movie? what movie is that? <laughs> okay, Mooseport, if Mooseport? you haven't seen it. Mooseport's is great. Mooseport is a, is a movie where it's Gene Hackman and Ray Romano. And uh, and so Gene Hackman plays a, a very popular president of the United States who finishes his second term and then retires to what has always been like his vacation home in this place in, I think, Maine, in Mooseport, Maine. It's a little small town. And Ray Romano is like the local handyman or something. And, and they need a new mayor. And everybody's like, uh, you know, uh, Mr. President Gene Hackman, like, how about you be the mayor? And he's like, fine, I'll be the mayor, right? Like he thinks it's purely ceremonial. But then I think he sort of like ends up uh, like kind of flirting with Ray Romano's like on again, off again girlfriend. And so then Romano files to run for mayor against him. And then oh it becomes, God. it becomes like this nationally watched race with like pollsters and like, and there's like a thousand people. Don't tell me the, the outcome. I, this sounds I like won't. a great movie. It's, I need to watch it's, it. Is it, it's it? like been panned is like not a good movie, but I enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, and plus I, I love Gene Hackman. I want anything Gene Hackman was in is, is so great. But anyway, uh, that I think he thought that's what was going to happen when he moved to Florida. That oh my gosh, the president lives in our state. How amazing! You know, like when Harry Truman used to go on walks around Independence, Missouri, right? But that ain't what has happened. Great town. You know? 
Shout Dude. out to Independence. Yeah, I've been to Independence three times, Jason. Three you, times. You have your, your cred. Your Independence I, cred. I, I, You're a I've former Truman scholar. I've done my work in Missouri. You know, mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm. Been, to, been to Missouri more than most states. Shout out to the Absolutely. good people in Missouri, especially when we're not in football season. I love then the people in Missouri. You're especially loving toward the people of Missouri. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, grab an so, or. Grab an or. Um, for some of the newer listeners, just to um, familiarize you with this, uh, we haven't done it much over the last few weeks, and I, we've seen the comments that people want us to bring it back, and so we, we've heard you. We are doing it. Grab an or is, it, you know, it's a long time saying with this show, which is like, you got to get involved. You got to grab an oar and start rowing. And so we try to end as many shows as we can with an opportunity for you to get involved and to make a difference. And so for grab an oar today, I wanted to highlight the April 4th election for Wisconsin Supreme Court. It's probably the most consequential election of 2023. Uh, Janet uh, which there's, there's a reason I think she goes by Judge Janet because that is spelled in a way where <laughs> yeah. you would not have thought it's protestant. It's, it's sort of like, you know, Mayor Pete, right? Um, she is a Milwaukee County trial judge and she is running in the April 4th election against Daniel Kelly, who's a former Wisconsin Supreme Court judge. He is a former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice because he lost his seat in 2020. It is technically a nonpartisan election. Um, but Judge Janet is liberal and uh, Kelly is conservative. Um, she got 46% in the first round. He got 24% splitting with another conservative candidate. So ironically, that leaves 54%. I say on this podcast, majority mm. 54. So That's it's going number. to be a very close race because, you know, when you look at those numbers, 54% of those folks voted for a conservative, but he is very conservative, like election denying, possibly that kind of thing. Uh, now, the reason this is so consequential is a conservative justice is retiring, and it's currently a 4-3 conservative 4 liberal 3 balance on that court. So if Judge Janet prevails, it would tip the balance of the state's seven-member uh, Supreme Court, which has been controlled by conservatives since 2008. Uh, so a form, that would give you a four-member liberal majority. It would likely overturn the state's 1849 law forbidding abortion in nearly all cases, which, you know, after the Dobbs decision has now taken effect again. Uh, It would redraw Wisconsin's heavily gerrymandered legislative and congressional maps, and it would settle any legal controversies that could come up following the 2024 election, meaning it could determine how the state's 10 electoral votes are awarded. And as we know, presidential elections in this country lately have had a tendency to come down to Wisconsin. So uh, Kelly had since 2020, this is the conservative candidate, uh, had been on the payroll of the Republican National Committee. So he loses his reelection to justice of the state Supreme Court. Sounds like a, an impartial jurist to me. Right. Exactly. Just, right. Yeah. He goes on the payroll of the of the RNC to work on, quote, election integrity issues. So let's let's think about this. After the 2020 election, he goes on the payroll to talk about election integrity issues uh, and money from election deniers have been pouring into his campaign and into election denying and, and election denying super PACs that have been promoting him with TV ads. So if you're in or near Wisconsin, uh, you should either volunteer because you're there or you can go there and volunteer between now and April 4th. If not, uh, you should support Judge Protasewitz or Judge Janet. And to do that, you can go to JanetForJustice.com. Wow. So, okay. Well, all right, one for us, Jason. What mm-hmm. we used to call banter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've got, I've got something for you. So, okay. uh, so I've been working with Mom a lot, which means sometimes I put on stuff in the background while I'm working. And there's this show on Netflix uh, called Outlast. I think it's like number one right now or number two in the country. Have you heard about this show? Outlast? No, huh? 
this show you are gonna love it it's it is insane uh it's right. it, jason bateman is the executive producer you know jason bateman from ozark mm-hmm. and they take 16 people and they put them in this valley in alaska and they basically say you have to form teams of three or four people and it's all about outlasting everybody else and the team that wins in the end and you could change teams and all this kind of stuff the team that wins the end wins a million dollars and it's Lord of the Flies out there. It is truly amazing is it television. Like a physical outlasting. There's like there's some things like like competitions and stuff, but a lot of it is just like building a fort, like staying warm, catching food. Oh, it's food. like outlast meaning yeah. you don't ring the bell and say you're going to leave. Yeah, people can. Yeah, people get a flare I gun see. and then they do. But like oh. this is human nature 101. Like watching it is like people are ruthless out there. And I'm left thinking, I was saying this, I was saying to somebody the other day, like there's not a, there's no show out there that has a reality show that I would be worse at than this one. Like I am a New Yorker. I don't know how to build this or catch Uh, that or start a fire or anything like that. I'll be good. Once the shit turns bad and people start turning on each other, then I'll be good. Like I'll be good at that. Because you would immediately emerge as like a coalition builder and a leader. You'd have people doing stuff for you. You'd you'd have like a multi-level marketing scheme developed very quickly. I would. I I think I would if I could find at least one person who knows outdoorsy shit to look after me because like i can't i literally wouldn't last one night if i if it were up to me to build the fire or like there are all these things that they do like i made a list of like a hundred things just in one episode that i just didn't know about outdoorsy stuff so (laughs) you gotta watch it though it's you know what's funny for me is i don't think i would do that well either because you know you would think like you know having served in the army that i mean there are certain parts of it I, i i do think i have a uh like if I have a superpower, it is an enhanced ability to endure suffering that I can do. Uh, but on the other hand, when it comes to stuff like building a fire, hunting and finding your food, you don't learn any of that in the army. And people think that you do because you, we, you know, in training, we lived in the woods a lot, but actually like you can't make a fire because the whole idea is like, you don't yeah, want the enemy to know you. where you are. Yeah, right? yeah. And then, and then you don't like you bring your food, you have MREs and that kind of thing. So like, I I would be I would just be really good at holding out for the million dollars, but not actually productive, and nobody would want me on their team. Well, well, well I, if you ever get a chance to watch this, like what you will think about immediately, if if you're like me and you think about politics all the time, is that inevitably in these games, this was true of Squid Games too, which is obviously fictional, but inevitably in these games, there are Republicans and there are Democrats. Even though mm. these people might not actually be Republicans, Democrats, meaning there are some people who are like. Well, if it's not technically forbidden, then I'm going to, I'm going to, and in some cases, obviously, if it is technically forbidden, which was the whole purpose of the last segment we did, but there's some people who are just going to be like, I'm going to, I don't care about ethics. I'm going to take this to like the extreme. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there are some people who are Democrats and are like, you know, like the norms, we got to be nice (laughs) to each other. And it plays out towards the end of this thing in a way where you're just pulling your hair out like... Oh my God, what mistakes you're making right now. It's like the 1988 election, you know, it's like, (laughs) it's like Kerry versus Bush. It's Gore versus Bush. It's Dukakis all over again. So yeah, yeah, this, this, this is a sign that I I pay too much attention to politics that I see it everywhere. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, All right. Well, what we've been doing in this, I think I mentioned this a little last week uh, is the world baseball classic is on and I am evangelizing about this everywhere I go because 
that, you know, like if you are, and there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, you know, I'll go to a game or two a year, but like, they're like, I don't even really follow my hometown team. You don't need to. The World Baseball Classic is designed for the same people who are like me uh, in soccer, right? Like, I don't, I don't pay attention to soccer. I don't have a team that I root for in the English Premier. I kind of have a vague notion of like how sporting Kansas City and the MLS is doing, but like, I've never been to a game. But I watch the World Cup, right? Uh, because it's incredible and it's countries going against each other. The World Baseball Classic is the World Cup of baseball, and it is some of the best players in the world, right? You've got like the Dominican team, which, by the way, it's incredible that the Dominican Republic, a country of 11 million people, has no doubt the best team in this deal. Uh, their, their lineup is basically half of the top 20 players in Major League Baseball. And, uh, and so, you know, you've got that. The, the like nationalist, you know, aspect, the national pride thing. But then you've also got this incredible thing because 20 teams, 20 countries qualify for this. So there are also countries that are in it that really baseball is not their thing. Right. So like earlier, like we've watched almost every game in this house and Diana's completely into it. Now we all are. Earlier tonight, we were watching the Dominican Republic, by far the best which team. Which probably the best, yeah. They're oh, killing it. By probably. far. And it's like them and then like Japan, which Shoei Otani is on, and then the United States, who would be really good, but they're, they've had issues with their, their pitchers being hurt and not being able to go. So you've got those teams, and then you've got Israel, okay? Israel has a team which, if you look at their line, there's 30 guys on their roster. Three of them were born in Israel. The entire rest of the team are Jews from America because the rules <laughs> of the World Baseball Classic are that to be eligible to play on a team, you simply have to be eligible. They don't have to have it, but eligible for citizenship in that country. Right. Oh, that's so, a smart rule. Yeah, it's amazing. So you've got MLB players who have never been to Italy playing for Italy. You've got uh, like, I mean, it's incredible. And and in this house full of Jewish baseball people, you know, me being a lifelong baseball player, my son wanting to be a major leaguer. We are watching Team Israel earlier tonight. They're playing right now. Uh, I think last I looked, Israel's down um, three to nothing to the Dominican Republic, which is incredible. They should be down 100 to nothing. Um, <laughs> yes. They, they, Israel beat Nicaragua the other day in this incredible comeback. And I just watched, before we came on the air, I watched this kid, Jacob Steinmetz, who plays single A for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Like he He's 19 years old. Ravi, a year ago, this guy was pitching in high school and i just watched him strike out in two innings strike out four of the best major league hitters in the world and then they show the video of him on the day he gets drafted with his family and he's wearing a yarmulke so like my son is watching this and it's the coolest thing right like it's <laughs> it's incredible I, you remind me i my roommate in law school had a book i think it was called famous jews in sports or something like that and he used mm -hmm. to just read it to me uh and it was <laughs> So you could add these guys to that. We, that I don't remember where we were list. once that we walked by a place that said the the uh, the Jewish Athletes Museum or the the Museum of Great Jewish Athletes, and I turned to my wife and I was I was like, I'm only half kidding when I ask you, do you think I might be in there? Like, yeah, <laughs> because I'm not a great athlete, but there's not that many great Jewish athletes. I know. It, I, well, if, if it's anything like Indians. Like they're catching up fast, so you better get your name in that Hall of Fame yeah, because I'm now you're starting there. to see it's, these people. Purely yeah. a joke. Yeah. But anyway, Get in the, there. but the world baseball I'll nominate to, you. to my final reason why people should be watching the world baseball classic is that if, if you've ever watched like a, a, a soccer match and been like, that seems like the coolest crowd and the place to be take that now make it baseball. Because like when the Dominican Republic played Venezuela the other night, it was like 
everybody in the crowd has flags and drums and it's it's just amazing and uh i'm so pumped we actually are so the the semifinals and the finals are uh next week they're uh monday and tuesday in um in miami at, at the marlin stadium we are going like oh we, wow I, we got ticket you know i never do stuff like this so we are going there and we're gonna we're gonna be in the stadium and see these games anyway it's people need to find these games and watch them they are they will make that'll be you what i put up now baseball, that i even if you now that i finish out last baseball is the perfect thing to have on in the background while you're working because yeah. it's like you know it's, it's, it's incredible not, it's not the fastest moving game like yeah. there's no way i mean anyway i'll stop but it's it's just so great and people need to be need to be watching it so all right um thank you to everybody uh for listening uh thank you to everybody who has been uh not just subscribing to the audio podcast but also leaving us um reviews for a five-star review but either way let us know you know how you feel about what, what we're doing well what we're more not baseball um, i imagine they want more baseball and reality tv who is what doesn't I they, that's what they yeah. want more baseball yeah. and reality tv thank you to the mightiest mighty and uh, everybody remember we all have a platform make sure to use yours today